The following presentation is brought to you by KMmedia.pro. Please visit KMmedia.pro for more information. Now stay right where you are as we present. Welcome to Positive Talk Radio, evolving ideas, one conversation at a time. Great guests, dynamic stories and interviews, plus new thoughts on a wide range of topics and concepts. I hope that you'll hang with me, Kevin McDonald, my friends, and of course, you, as together we work to understand why we are all here and what we can do to make our world a better place for all of us to be happy, be kind, and live in peace together. Yep, that's Positive Talk Radio. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Positive Talk Radio. My name is Kevin McDonald, and you're listening to us right here, and we're going to talk to a young lady who is an author, and she's a historian. She lives in, in wonderful Bakersfield, California, and uh, it's starting to be springtime there, which means it's hotter than Hades, and it's going to get even hotter uh, there and throughout the summer. But that's that you get used to it after a bit, I suppose. So, so S.C. Burns, how are you today? I'm great, thank you, Kevin. Uh, it uh, it's thankfully not sizzling hot yet, and we'll have some cool weather uh, toward the Mar end of March and beginning of April. But from May on. There's no turning back. It's 90 and above. So that's the standard here in Bakersfield. About how hot does it get there? What's the hottest that it gets? Does it, does it... Since I've lived here several times, I've endured 113 to 115. That uh, the, the worst has been in the last couple of summers when we've had three weeks over 100. It was common last summer and the summer before, three weeks over 100 degrees. So there's no relief when it's like that, 105 to 110 overnight, 90 to 95. So we uh, we burn the air conditioning a lot. That's why I have solar panels on my roof. Oh, good for you. That that yes. that defrays some of that cost a little bit. Um, you know, so. the interesting thing about I've been to Anchorage, Alaska in the dead of winter. I've been to Phoenix, Arizona when it was 110. I can't decide which is easier to get into your car with, whether it's freezing cold and you have to chip your car out or whether or not you can't touch the steering wheel for 15 minutes because it's too darn hot. Um, so I, it's amazing the in our country, the the differences from Alaska to, to California. And, and, and I just talked with a gentleman who there's still snow on the ground in Vermont where where he is. So. It's it's really is um, it's a big country. We've got a lot of stuff going on, and um, go ahead. And with climate change, it's even more unpredictable. Yeah, and it's going to get even sadly unless we decide that we are going to get together and fix it. It's going to continue get, to get even worse until uh, we are forced to make a decision uh, and and to fix it. And that's hopefully we will start moving in that direction and i love the fact that you've got solar panels um right. because that that is very good for the environment especially with when it's 100 degrees you have to run air conditioning um, exactly you know and like in seattle we don't a lot of us don't even have air conditioning there's one benefit to having a lot of sunshine those solar panels help out a lot. <laughs> yes, they yes they do. Well, let's talk about you. You're a historian of note, and you also were an author. And we're going to talk about your latest book, which really is a uh, um, multi um, generational saga. Would that would that be a good way to describe it? It is. Yes, the story starts in 1846, but most of the story takes place in the 20th century and into the 21st century. So it is a parallel universe to Bakersfield, California. And so all the names and places and featured restaurants and country clubs uh, are based on the real deal, but fictional names in order to protect both the innocent and the guilty. So there's nothing dull about it from beginning to end. And there is plenty of innocent, and there's also plenty of guilty to be Very. talking about. So exactly. tell us a little bit about the premise of the book. 
Okay, the premise, since uh, this is Bakersfield and it was founded by Colonel Baker, I made my fictional town founded by a man named Frank Cook, who was a captain in the cavalry during the Mexican War. That's why the story begins in 1846, doesn't spend much time there. But he also finds out about the discovery of gold at, in California at Sutter's Fort. And so he and his new bride, who is Choctaw, uh, make their way across to the California gold fields by 1849 are among the first people and make a fortune in gold. The first gold, of course, you just could stumble across it on the ground, pick up the gold nuggets, and they called it dry diggings. So he made a fortune there, but en route to that destination, they pass through this beautiful area of the, in my book, I call it San Andreas Valley. Of course, in reality, it's the San Joaquin Valley. And the Kern River was a delta back then. So I, it was a, a, an oasis to him and his wife, Lily. And they spent some time there on their way to the gold fields. They remembered it later on and decided that's where they wanted to go and create their own settlement and uh, a settlement that would protect the other people in California's early history. She was Choctaw. There were a lot of Native Americans on the land at the time because the Spanish missions had closed down in 1823, Presidio went away. So now they're on the land and the native, uh, the new mestizo race uh, have to adjust to the fact that this is U.S. territory. And the Chinese that are already here in the gold fields and helping on the railroads, they also have a place to fill. So all of them come together in the fictional town of Cooksville, just as they did in the real town of Bakersfield. So I take it into the 20th century with the characters, the dramatic characters in my story, because I met many of them late in their lives after I moved to Bakersfield and the legal community. So uh, uh, the story revolves around a criminal investigator who works for the leading criminal law firm in Bakersfield or Cooksville. So it goes from one crime to another with a lot of heartrending and heartwarming stories in between of the real people that I have met here. It puts a face and a character to the town that Hollywood has interpreted in one way, but it's really much more diverse, much more wealthy, much more colorful, and uh, much more of the original vigilante form of law. I wanted to ask you because I, I'm, I'm sadly I've I've driven by Bakersfield, but I've never spent any meaningful time there, and it's like it's in the middle of the desert. And what was what caused um, Mr. Baker to settle there? Was there like a lake, or was there a, a river that went through it, or what was what the the original settlement? What okay. was that all about? Okay, the Kern River is still here. At the time, in that point in history, there was a huge river delta, and it spread out across the valley. So through the centuries and decades, that river has been diminished through redistribution, just like the Colorado River has been diminished through redistribution and a drying up of resources. But originally, it was a huge river delta. And when I first moved here, it was still flowing through Bakersfield. And within a decade or two, <laughs> there was a famous t-shirt we like to remember. One of the hotels sold it and it said, Bakersfield, a riverbed runs through it. So that'll give you an idea of how it changed. <laughs> well, because it was a river delta, I imagine that the soil was very rich. And, and so it was conducive to growing produce and, and, uh, and a lot of, uh, of orchards and that sort of thing and originally. And that's the, there was a lot of that there, wasn't there? There still is. There still is. It's a very agricultural valley. There's a lot of potatoes, onions, garlic, carrots, um, fruits. We, you know, the as Southern California turned into a concrete jungle, orange groves moved further northward. So we've still got a lot of orange groves here. The problem is we do freeze in the winter. So sometimes they have to run the smudge pots and sometimes they have to hover helicopters to keep them the citrus from freezing. But always uh, there are apple orchards in Tehachapi. There are almond orchards and pistachio orchards. 
and lots of cotton, lots of cotton. It was a big industry here in California. It still is. So all of those industries still survive and thrive. It is an oh. agricultural valley. Oh, that's a, that's re, that's really cool because isn't Bakersfield between San Francisco and uh, Sacramento? Am I oh no, it's much further south. It's just a hundred miles north of L.A. You come oh, okay. over the, the mountains, the Angeles National Forest, and down into the valley. So we're at the southern tip of this valley, and um, so the problem with that location is that a lot of the uh, air pollution from Sacramento southward drifts down here and we're surrounded. We're, we're like in a U shape of mountains around us and uh, the air pollution gets caught here. And oh, of wow. course, you, and there's have, the oil industry, who, which is added to that. Oil is one of the key uh, wealth builders here in Kern County. Interesting. Interesting. Now, uh, have you been impacted by, and we talked about global warming a little bit earlier. Have you been impacted by the fires at all? Uh, in the past few years, yes, tremendously. They have been all around us and the ash falling on us. And at times it brings the temperature down in the summer because we get such a covering of ash from the, from the wildfires, but it hasn't ripped through Bakersfield. Thankfully, we've had a few field fires and our fire department gets it out quickly, the city and county. You know, I, I've lived in Seattle my entire life and that's 64 years wow. and it hasn't been, I had never seen uh, smoke fill up the area like, like it has in the last, I don't know, a dozen years or less um from from the fires in british columbia and from the fires in in eastern washington and, and so forth and you you are in in bakersfield is it's kind of a bowl so you get you get stuck with that stagnant air as well so you get a lot of that uh stuff is is that a new phenomenon for you as well well it's worse that's it, it there was used to be a wildfire season and now in the last decade it doesn't seem to to choose a season, it can happen anywhere. The problem in California, of course, course, is so many people have settled into mountainous areas that become prestigious communities like the hillsides in Malibu and then the hillsides in Santa Barbara, and they have beautiful large estates. And when the wildfires come rushing down those hillsides, they've wiped out some, some, a lot of expensive homes and, uh, seem to always uh, save certain prestigious people's homes miraculously but we get uh, we get the fallout from all of it over here in bakersfield and it i can remember back in the summer of 08 i believe when there was a terrible it was either 07 or 08 terrible fire in the mountains of santa barbara that went on for weeks and weeks and weeks and we had so much uh, ash all over everything here in Bakersfield, but it did take down the temperature from a hundred plus to about 80, 80 oh, to well 85. That, if there <laughs> is, if there is anything good about, about that, I guess that would be it. Uh, but, would. yeah, but, but still it's, you know, I, I, like I said earlier, I hope that we are, we get our senses about us and we change, uh, what we're doing so that, um, you know, I'm surprised. Uh, is there a lot of um, um, uh, solar panels and stuff that are being used for for general power in Bakersfield? Are there, and 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 also um, because of the hills, um, um, a, yes, turbines and that sort of thing. Right, there are. Up in Tehachapi, there's a lot of turbines, and as you go over the mountains. Now, one of the schools that I teach at, and I've been mainly online for the last couple of years, but I'll be on campus. Uh, in the fall is over in Lancaster, Antelope Valley College. So when I go over the Tehachapi's, I'm passing all the windmills, the turbines all the way down to the desert and uh, the fields on the other side, the slopes on the other side of the Tehachapi's are filled with turbines. And then the Mojave Desert is loaded with solar panels. There are several locations that they're just acres and acres of solar panels. So it is a big industry in Kern County, all the way to Mojave and down in Lancaster, which is Los Angeles County. So both solar panels and wind energy. And they're growing to a great degree. Yeah. Tremendously. Thank goodness. Yeah. Well, Thank goodness. Yes. Because they, uh, and you know, it's one of those things where 
natural gas and oil and coal are getting more expensive. And the more that they work on the technology for clean energy fuel, like um, um, solar panels and, and wind turbines, uh, those are getting cheaper and they're creating more jobs. So I, I'm hopeful that we are going to end up going to that because it's going to make more economic sense to do that as well as uh, environmental sense. Do, they, right. do, you, do you think that's going to happen? I hope it does. I hope it does. Um, I'm heartened by the fact that we have an administration in Washington now that believes in that and this is not telling people that wind energy causes cancer and kills off the birds. Now, <laughs> here in my neighborhood, we have a lot of trees. We're on the on the uh, the western slope of the Tehachapi's in the hillside, and uh, we have a lot of trees, and it's beautiful, but we're inundated with birds, you know, just doves and pigeons and every type of fowl. So we're loaded with bird power here, <laughs> so which, which actually uh, proves proves that the former president was incorrect. They're not dying off. <laughs> well, you know, if, if we, we don't have enough time to talk about all the things that he was incorrect about. Yeah. And so we don't, we don't talk about that much. And so I'll leave that there. So I don't get a lot of emails, but okay. at, the, at the same time, so we're talking with uh, SC Burns and she's written the book Cooksville, USA. It's an historical fiction and it really is about the uh, Bakersfield area from its inception in the mid-1840s uh, until uh, it ends up being in the 21st century. Right, right. And the major characters were influential in the 20th century into the 21st century. It's a story of um, crime and affairs and extramarital affairs and political corruption and under the table cover-ups. My major character, Lenny, is an expert. He and his criminal defense attorney know exactly who who to pay under the table and how to get it done. And there was a common theme in Bakersfield history with the law firm this is based upon, that the attorney, it was mouthed around town, if you want to commit a crime and get away with it, go see go see this attorney with $10,000. $10,000 will get you out of, it's your get out of jail pass. So I cover some of the trials that, uh, that my real investigator, and in my book, he's named Lenny. He, the real one, helped cover up the Spade Cooley uh, crime when he killed his wife, both stomped her and shot her. So I'm, I do a fictional character that's based on that trial, and my my man is the fixer, like Ray Donovan. If you watch that series, he's the fixer. He's much neater about it. He's much more covert. You don't see any blood on his hands. He shows up quick, gets it over with in a dirty manner, and they pay off the right people. And uh, he was, in the years that I knew him, and my husband and I would meet him for lunch and chat about his life, he would say frequently, I'm not proud of a lot of the stuff that I've done, but, and I would say, then I, I want to tell your story. It's, it's just too exciting not to be told. And he'd said, ah, you know, it's worth a 50 cent cup of coffee and, you know, lunch or something. And I'd say, no, no, it's, it's worth a lot more than that. So there were some Hollywood types who actually contacted him and wanted to tell his story. So when he passed in 2011, I decided it was time to write that book. Well, I, I think that's great because you're also a teacher and you're, you teach history, right? Right. I've been teaching for 26 years, both sections of U.S. history. Women's history is my concentration in African-American history, but I've also taught, I taught American economic history for eight years, which is why I understand. I understand why President Biden is uh, a pro-FDR, pro-New Deal president. I understand the economics that brought us out of the Depression because he was held back in his spending. But when World War, World War II forced him to spend for production for the war, it brought us right out of the Depression very it, quickly. It did. And it also is responsible, as you know, for, in a large way, creating a large middle class in this country. Exactly. I mean, there's something 
real about the statement of the fabulous 50s. It was economically sound period. The U.S. was the strongest economy. Our dollar was the strongest. The value of gold was pegged to the U.S. dollar at about, oh, it was 30, maybe 35 to 36 dollars an ounce. And as long as we were tied to that gold standard, uh, we had a thriving economy. But in the 50s, the top tier was still paying. By the end of the war, the top tier paid 94% in taxes. In the 50s, they were still paying 92%. And in the 60s and 70s and on down to the 80s, it never got below 70% for the top tier. And it was a prosperous period. But, oh. Uh, and Keynesian, e Keynesian economics works. That's the point. <laughs> it, it, it does. By the way, being a history uh, major and uh, being being a teacher, I have to ask you a few questions. What year was the War of 1812 fought? Okay. <laughs> Who's buried okay. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you're right. 1812 and Grant. <laughs> <laughs> but I wanted to ask you, because I have been um, – interested in history uh u.s history specifically my whole life and and so i've studied a little bit about it and but kids today kids today they don't seem to have a clear understanding of the history and and also the history is changing because it's what what, what is, was in the history books when i was in school so long ago that really isn't the case they've discovered that the history that we were told isn't the real history well, um, the college curriculum expanded beginning in the late 50s, 60s, when students at Berkeley and the leading Ivy League colleges insist upon a wider curriculum. Everybody was tired of hearing just about U.S. military might and politics and wanted to know the rest of the story. And so by the 70s and 80s, the new social history was being taught in colleges, but it was hard to let it drift downward in K through 12 because the education system was resisting it. When we finally got there, there were segments of the country that wouldn't accept it, like the South doesn't want to teach the Civil War, and they haven't, uh, from Tennessee to Virginia. I've toured in those areas so many times, but I've also had students who told me, I grew up in Tennessee and I never knew anything about the Civil War. I went to a, a Civil War battleground where a park ranger was reading a book that I'd read as a graduate student. And he said, I said, that's a wonderful book, don't you think? And he says, I'm just finding out about the Civil War. And he said, I grew up here and they didn't teach it. So I learned from my tours that they just called it the War of Northern Aggression. Those, you know, those damned Yankees came down here and tried to change our way of life and they won. And uh, so they didn't want to talk about it. They didn't want to report it. So it's been difficult to get all the details of history, the real history of Native Americans and, you know, westward expansion and tell it truthfully. But in the colleges, we do. But we get a lot of shock and awe <laughs> from students who haven't heard it. And of course, and then there's that resistance and the people that were the old heroes, they want them to remain the heroes, even if they were pretty inhumane in their methodology of taking over. You know, one of the one of the uh, people that is being looked at again, new, is uh, Robert E. Lee. And exactly. Robert E. Lee was a Confederate uh, um, general, and he fought at Gettysburg, and he was considered the premier general of his day. And uh, but he was a slaveholder. Mm -hmm. And uh, he also was a bit, a little ruthless, you know, or he could very, very well be. Mm -hmm. And and so, you know, they built a lot of statues to him. And now it's coming, you know, when you think about it, he was a traitor. And he killed Union soldiers. And he killed his fellow, you know. So so there's a lot of, there's a lot of that uh, um, reconnecting to actual history that we need to do so that we can move forward as a country together, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. Um, I don't think we necessarily have to destroy those old monuments to the Confederate South, but take them somewhere out of our face, you know, put them in a, a museum uh, which recognizes the past. But Robert E. Lee, any, 
the first state to secede from the Union was South Carolina. As soon as Lincoln was elected in November of 1860, uh, South Carolina seceded right away, and pretty soon six states followed, and among them were Virginia and others. And uh, so Lincoln was, first of all, concerned about bringing the Union back together more than he was concerned about ending slavery. So he tried yeah. other tactics first. But those who led the rebellion, they were... They were breaking the law. They were breaking the Constitution because we were a, a United States and they wanted to create their own country. Yeah. Well, and, and uh, that that in this day and age would be called treason, um, mm -hmm. which which they I, to my understanding, nobody was brought up on after the war. Part of the settlements and, and stuff was to kind of bury that stuff so that nobody was. Uh, tried or convicted of of treason and and that sort of thing. So, uh, I, I I I find it fascinating that we have got there's so much about our history that we don't know even yet today uh, what actually happened with the westward expansion and and that sort of thing. So it's it's really is fascinating and uh, um, it's 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 great to talk to you about about the, the historical facts and stuff. How did you get his? How did you get interested in history and was that long ago or how, what did you what was your passion around that okay my starting point was in elementary school when i started reading a series of biographies that were books at the back of the class i didn't have to go to the library i just borrowed one at a time and they were about leading figures in our country's history including some of the mountain men like jim bridger i'd never heard of him and uh, Louisa May Alcott, I hadn't heard of her, but once I did, then uh, they, they were written in such a, uh, an appealing manner that it got me turned on to reading biographies, and pretty soon I was reading mysteries and others. But what really was the final point was my experience in life, having grown up on the northwestern, northwestern Kentucky on the Ohio River. I had uh, African-American babysitters, you know and my mom went off to work. So I had the experience of loving them and appreciating them. So I had a little bit of that taste of what it must've been like to have a mammy, <laughs> you know, what they called them back then. Sure. But then we moved to California and it was a totally different feeling in Southern California and I had to make that adjustment. But along with all of that history was turmoil within my own family and a turmoil that divided us and my mom taking us to different religious groups and me marrying within a group that I eventually decided this is a cult and I must get out of it. Now I have three children. And when I came to the realization that I was a very bright person, why didn't I always trust my own intellect? And I went back to school in my 30s with three kids in school and became a single woman. And I found then that my old business major really didn't offer me the, the fulfillment that I wanted. It was the history, understanding the history. When you study colonial America, you study the creation of many historic religious movements. And they are in response to the history, the drama that's going on at the time. So one after another, I saw, well, this is not unique. It's not unique, but and it's always um, it always subordinates one group of people if not always females. And so I just had to dig deeper into history to understand the religious movements, what caused them, why women were always subordinate, why we couldn't get over the civil war and subordination of an entire race, why among all the people in the United States, there's only one group that has to go to a separate school and through a separate door into a separate, why do they have to? You can't identify any other race. They all went to common areas, but one group, and it was because the South never got over losing the Civil War. So they wanted to impose that hatred and subordination throughout the centuries, and they've been able to do it, as we see. If we continue through the Jim Crow era and, and all of, and even in the 60s, um, and, and well, and it continues today. A, a young man jogging through a neighborhood and he gets hunted down by three white men who shoot him on the run. You know? the, the, yeah. The only, the only thing that, that helps us today is that 
not, 50 years ago that wouldn't have been public and right. because and because they can't hide it anymore it became a deal and mm-hmm. those three were convicted and as well they should have been mm-hmm. uh, for doing for i mean this poor guy was just jogging through a neighborhood just minding his own business exactly. and and uh so from that standpoint technology has been our friend in that because they can't you can't hide it or when george floyd when they showed that that tape of him with the officer on his neck for nine and a half minutes Ugh, miserable. That was the most horrific thing I'd ever seen in my entire life on TV. Um, and he didn't have one show of emotion, just calmly killed him in front of everybody. And worse than that, the, the there were three officers that were standing around watching him murder somebody and did nothing about it. Exactly. They, didn't, they didn't say, are you sure you should be doing this? Or how about taking your, your, uh, uh, knee off of his neck for a couple of moments or or he's not going anywhere he's in handcuffs now why don't you back off none of that happened no 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 so between so, the turmoil within my own personal family and injustice that i could see i was constantly saying to myself as i grew up when i'm a mother i'll never do that when i'm a parent i will never do that and i was making these you know, making the setting standards for myself. And when I went back to school, I found the way to to abide by my standards is to keep on with the social justice. And so that's how that's what I did. I had to keep looking for answers so that I could turn around, and tell my children what really happens and what really should happen. So uh, when's the uh, autobiography coming out? Well, I'm working on it when I get as I get time, I'm, I'm hoping within uh, a year that my own story will be coming because out. Because that, that story, I think, is every bit as good as any other story that you can come up with. Because especially, you know, um, we've lived our lives in a time that is of cataclysmic change. Of It is a remarkable period in time in history. And, uh, and you should tell your story about all of that. That would be awesome. Yeah. I, I have been told that many times. So I, the question is, do I fictionalize it uh, or do I just come right out and tell the real story? I don't think you need to fictionalize it. I think that the real story would have much more of an impact because it, okay. because if it's an autobiography, if it's an autobiography, then it is, you know, true um to the best of your information and knowledge so Mm -hmm. uh, but whatever on the other hand there are two hands to everything on one hand yes on the other hand if you don't want a bunch of people at your doorstep you might want (laughs) to that's the that's the problem (laughs) yeah i do have some relatives left (laughs) (laughs) and so you you might want to say here's a friend of mine and this is what happened to her poor sydney Exactly. You know, so I I don't know. That's that that's a hard one. It is because to tell the truth, you're going to piss somebody off. There's just no question about that. True. Um, And because not everybody wants wants to know the truth. Like like it's interesting the the new thing that they're talking about the that they're talking about in college is the critical race theory. Um, right. And that's become a, a national boogeyman of sorts when it was really not designed to do any of the, anything like that. It was just trying to explain why the rules and the laws were written the way they are and why they're enforced the way they are based upon our history. Isn't that kind of more so? Exactly. It was uh, among the legal community. That's where the term in law schools, they were teaching critical race theory. We weren't teaching it in the colleges. There's African-American history. There's women's history. There's Latin American history, Chicano history. Uh, But, you know, when you're teaching the history of the United States, you have to touch on all of them, which includes why we first brought slaves over from Africa and why it grew to be the worst uh, slave institution in the world and why it continued economic it was a color line when you consider all of those things i mean it um it's just the history i i try to tell my students i'm not i'm not teaching you critical race theory i'm just telling you the story 
as it happened. This is the history of our United States, and we wouldn't have the United States we have if it weren't for slave labor. That's 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 very true. You know, the other thing that's that's true about that is if you go back, you would know this. So I could be wrong, but you tell me. The United States in the 1860s was one of the last industrialized countries that still sanctioned slavery. Am I, am I, I, I believe so. I believe so. Now, I've had other people insist that there was slavery in other pockets, and I'm sure that we probably can't prove it. And I, I haven't read a source that proves it, but as far as modern industrial nations, modern now, European nations. Yeah. And I would say that's correct. We're the last one. Now last there were, I'm, I'm sure that in Africa, uh, because in Africa there had been slavery and, and it was different tribes would take mm -hmm. other people from different tribes and they would make them. And that, that, that is, and to, to be honest with you, we still have got a slave trade going on, but that women, yes. Mm and sex trade and and all of that then all that needs to be eradicated but and i'm glad that that you you're going to write that book and it's going to be a contemporary about our time and about all the things that have happened during our lifetime yours and mine because we're roughly the same age i think mm -hmm. and uh you're you're much prettier and much younger than me of course um but uh <laughs> yeah <laughs> but uh it, i think that story needs to be told i i do too I I hear that from people all the time. If you ha if you have the courage to tell your story, so many people will benefit from it. And that because, is at the end of the day, that's why we're all here, is right. to help each other and to educate each other on on how better. Because you know what we have to get together in this country is that we are a melting pot. There is nobody except for the uh, uh, original indigenous uh, uh, natives. And even they were were uh, um, immigrants at one point when they came, they came over the land bridge or wherever. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, but but we are all a melting pot. We're all the same. Uh, we we are a, a glorious mixture of everybody. You know, I wanted I wanted to ask you about the latest, a newer phenomenon, which is blended families. And people and and people that are of mixed race. And there, that population is growing mm -hmm. to, to a great degree. And eventually, and I think, and you tell me, but I think that's one of the reasons why white people are scared. I think so. Absolutely. I, and I've been talking about it for years. Pretty soon, they're going to outnumber you. Pretty soon, they're going to outnumber you. And that's what they're afraid of. Exactly. It's going to be in my lifetime. And, and which is not going to be that many years in the future, but uh, it's, it's because is it because it is, I know so many blended families and, uh, and, and we are the white Anglo-Saxon uh, version of us is going to be going away. Uh, we right. are going to become a, a minority. And I think that's going to happen soon. Right. Well, Kamala Harris is mixed race herself, Asian yep. and uh, well, so, so African is, uh, from the Caribbean. So is uh, President Obama. Well, yes, exactly. And the current um, nominee for the Supreme Court has a mixed race marriage. So her daughters are miscegenated race, you know, a white so father, a, an African descent mother and a, a perfect example. And it's a beautiful example. I've told my students over and over. I think the blended races are the most beautiful people. I'm sorry uh, if I'm offending you, pale people like me, but I think the blended races are just beautiful people. So they 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 really why are. why why do we stand back and condemn it? And, and nor should we, nor should we. Mm -hmm. I I agree with you. I was uh, I used to be a bus driver, and one time I was uh, listening to three um, teenagers, and they were talking about another kid in school, and uh, they said. Uh, and they were talking about how cute he was and all this kind of stuff. And they said, well, what is he? And he said, <laughs> you know, and she said, well, I think he's uh, uh, a little Mexican. I think he's uh, Filipino and he's got a little white. And, and so they have got the kids have got a much different view of what race is than us older folks, because in their world, 
being being a, a mixed race is is their friends. That's who they are, mm-hmm. and, and they don't and they don't care. Right. Well, I have grandchildren in elementary school, and I noticed that they never identify their friends by color. And right. I think that's wow. What a great what a great testimony to progress. On the other hand, we've got sections of the country that they can't get away from it. So. I, yeah. and I, I've told this story before. I worked out of uh, Arkansas for a number of years. And uh, um, the, the attitude of people in Arkansas is so much different. We were uh, the guy who was training me. He, he was a white guy and I'm a white guy. And we were sitting in a stoplight in Fort Smith, Arkansas. And it was right in the neighborhood of where the hanging judge the courtroom was. All right. Yeah. And uh, Judge Roy was- Bean. Yes, Judge Roy Bean, and, and yeah. there's a movie made about him, and and so I was looking at that, and I was and 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 um, the guy that I was riding with, who was a native from Arkansas, and he goes, excuse the expression, he goes, that's a goddamn shame, <laughs> and I'm and I'm looking around, and I'm I'm going, I'm I'm sorry, what do you what you know what what's what's a goddamn shame. And he says, look at that. And, a, and in the crosswalk was a white girl and a black man holding hands. Uh-huh. Now, I'm from Seattle. We don't even notice that because that, that's just, but in his world, as narrow as it is, it was a goddamn shame. That, 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 that you know, and it's, it's like, I, you know, you're not going to change, but thank goodness. I hate to say this. No, I don't. Thank goodness <laughs> you're going to get old and die. Because, <laughs> because the I know. <laughs> you know. That's how change happens. Here's a perfect parallel to that. Since I teach women's history, most, most of my students, until they take my course, they remember Susan B. Anthony. They've heard of her, but they don't know Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who really got it started before her. She and Lucretia Mott had the first... A women's Rights Convention in 1848, Seneca Falls, New York. And then later on, uh, they were all abolitionists first. And then she met another abolitionist, Susan B. Anthony. And she and Susan B. became the best of friends. And they led the movement throughout the 19th century. And at one point, their letters back and forth, Elizabeth Cady Stanton had seven children. And so she did all the writing. And Susan B. Anthony traveled and lectured. And she sent her a message about her frustration over still not having the vote and still unable to move women to want the vote. Not It was a minority of women that wanted to vote. And she finally said, you know, I think that the sooner the current generation passes away, the better our, <laughs> better our chances are. And I love that because so many times I've been thinking, I can't wish my generation to pass away, so I'm going to have to make some changes. <laughs> Hopefully, make some changes because uh, it's so uh, discouraging to see young people my children's age being so racist and carrying on that tradition of hatred. It's it's unbelievable. So I, I remember her words often. She just got so frustrated. The sooner they die off, the better it will be. <laughs> so that's the same. See, that's but that's that's how evolution happens. Uh, because because I was saying, I said, can imagine if somebody that was a slave owner in the 1800s was still alive today, they would still be lamenting the fact that they could not whip black people around anymore and doing that it's so it's better that they to get new thoughts into things that we have new generations that come you know when i was in high school there were no there were no gay people now that's absolutely not true right but nobody admitted that they were gay right and now when my sons were in high school um, there were people that were openly gay and the kids were like, I don't care. Not a big deal to me. Older people thought it was shameful that there are gay people. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, the young people don't care. So as that they grow older and they're still not going to care. And the older folks 
die off, then we have new thoughts. And then that's, that's how the evolution happens, I believe. Exactly. Yeah. And, but that's what was so disturbing from uh, 2016 and for a few years that all of a sudden someone gave that segment of society support and the right to show up and, and be racist and class, you know, the, the division could grow again. It was so, I was so tired of being angry. <laughs> day after day, I was so tired of being angry that I finally say, oh. You know, it's interesting. Um, you're familiar with January 6th, what happened January 6th. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There, was a, there was a guy that he's still sitting in jail in Washington, D.C. He was a real good friend of my son's. And I, I met him on several occasions. Seemed like a very nice kid. But he went off the deep end and he became a proud boy. Uh. And he and his family, he wanted to, he, he bought into the doctrine. His family ended up disowning him uh, because they couldn't get through to him that that wasn't the appropriate thing to do. He became well-known in that circle. And uh, he was there on January 6th and, uh, and he, he was one of the leaders of the insurrection and now he's sitting in jail waiting. And so I'm hopeful that because his family took the view of let's join him or not join him, but we're, we're going to condemn what he's doing. Um, I'm hopeful that that segment is going to go away. It's all, I think it's all been driven by fear. They're scared of change. They're scared of not being, uh, of having what they've always thought that there was their birthright to have. White and, privilege. White privilege, yeah. Yeah, and and those things, you are who you are a human. And the color of our skin should matter not a bit. Uh, who we love should matter not a bit. Uh, because it's none of my business. I don't know you from Adam and on a personal level, Sarah, and, and I don't know who you love, and it's none of my business. I just know that you're a very nice lady and a very intelligent person and a great author, and you need to get the book Cooksville, USA. You see how I blended that all together? That was yes. Cool. <laughs> I, by the way, I have a new website, and it's it's uh, it's very, very nice. I'm very proud of the website about my book, CooksvilleUSA.com. And it is CooksvilleUSA.com. Yes, and it's spelled C-O-O. K E S B I L L E U S A dot com. That's a, that that's awesome, and and I'm how's it, how's it now? The book's been out for since uh, October of twenty twenty one. June twenty nine, twenty twenty one, actually is when it was first released. But oh, okay, this okay, this review is that I'm looking at is from October. Right, right, right. Okay, how's the book doing? It's doing well. I uh, I would like to uh, see it blazing in the headlines a little bit more, but I, I've gotten a lot of notoriety, especially around Bakersfield and then the PR firm that I hired in L.A., the Anthony, Anthony Mora Agency, has gotten me featured in many magazine uh, articles and newspapers down south. So it has kept us steady. I've gotten two royalty checks and three from uh, the publisher and uh, three royalty checks from Amazon. So I'm heartened that uh, it's, well, it's you a just, hit, hit here in Bakersfield and it should be a hit everywhere because it is, uh, it's the story of one town, which really is a mirror of America, the United States and what goes on in what seemed like small towns, Bakersfield's over 500,000 as far as the extended population here, but it's I, I uh, think exciting. It would be, I think it would be a great miniseries. I do too. I'd like to see that. I've, we've been working on it. And the trailer is on my website, cooksvilleusa.com. So the Mora Agency has created a pitch for books to movie. So you can you can see more of that. On the oh, website. very good. Lindsay does a real nice job. She she works hard for you guys. Yeah, I, I like her very much. And Anthony and uh, the books to movie uh, gal Amanda 
all three of them are very, very positive and helpful. Very nice. Well, you know, we are wrapping up our time together and I want to thank you for being here. I've had a, this has been a fascinating discussion and I've really appreciated it. Well, um, I know it's, I, I liked you the first time we met and I just knew this would be fun. So thank you very much for having me on. Oh, you're more than welcome. And it, it is fun. And by the way, uh, before we go, is there anything that you'd like to tell our audience, the ones that are listening now or that are listening in the future, uh, the floor is yours. Okay, if you like uh, exciting mysteries that unfold in a surprising manner over and over through the decades, if you like criminal stories, crime investigation, if you like stories about the mob, very, uh, this book based on Bakersfield and the law firm and the criminal investigator, they rub shoulders with the mob a lot in Vegas and in Bakersfield. There's a strong Italian community here. And so Cooksville has a lot of that uh, activity and connection going on, um, including Bugsy Siegel. So read Cooksville USA for an exciting time and a lot of really good sex. Ooh, dare I say that word. Mm -hmm. um, and, and by the way, if you're unfamiliar with who Bugsy Siegel is, he was one of the people who actually created Las Vegas. Exactly. And, exactly. So, and so he, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's a fascinating read and it, it should be. And it, it's it's a uh, saga that is multi-generational. And that's re that's really cool as well. So, yes, and I'm waiting. I'm waiting for your biography or your autobiography, however, or your historical biography, however you choose to write it. Uh, that, right. that would be great as well. So I anything else before we go? Well, it's been a pleasure. And uh, I, I hope to keep writing and sharing uh, the exciting stories of the valley as well as my life, because there's I nothing dull about it. Nope. And I think you have to. It It is. It is part of your contribution to our society to be able to write that. And because you, you've lived through some amazing changing times. We and really have. So, yeah, and, and I'll be following you, Kevin. Well, I, I, just, yeah, I, I, I appreciate that. And I'll be getting you the, the links and all of that. But you stay right where you are. I've got to do this and I'll be right back. All right. Thanks for enjoying this episode all the way to the end. Please give us a like and subscribe to this channel. This has been a production of KMmedia.pro. Please visit our website, oddly enough, named KMmedia.pro for more details about us and our mission, which is to provide great positive programming designed to inspire us all. I'm Kevin McDonald, and I'm proud of these shows, and I truly hope that you'll like them and share them with friends and family. So on behalf of our entire team, remember, be kind to each other because each other's all we've got. We'll see you next time.